<laughs> Alrighty. So today we're going to be talking about fear. Ooh. All the scary stuff. Welcome back to Bridging the Synapse. I'm Madeline MacArthur. And I'm Anu Kumar. Let's talk about fear. Fear is an emotion that kind of promotes a sort of panic in your system. And Panic at the disco. <laughs> yes. Panic, possibly at the disco. Shout out to Britt and Yuri. <laughs> and then so... Um, fear is this activation of the fight or flight response, which we kind of talked about in previous episodes. It's the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, right? It's this feeling of wanting to get away from this thing that is making you feel uncomfortable, like you feel like your life is being threatened. Mm -hmm. Or this feeling that you just want to, like, fight it. You just need to, like, make it stop existing. You need to make it stop trying to scare you. Yeah. And not like a fight me kind of attitude, but a my life depends on this kind of sort of like self-defense in a way like someone like some some creature from like a scary movie is coming at you and you just gotta like fight them off otherwise you're not getting it out out of their life this is really scary let's go let's let's do this well so what can induce this fear either this fight or flight response um basically anything can induce a fear it's really based on your experience and also your um, relationship to that stimulus. Um, so anything can be scary. <laughs> anything can be scary, which, you know, life falls in that category. Life is scary. But um, not to get too deep. So some typical things that you think of that m- will make you feel scared are, like, loud noises, especially when you're, like, a child. Loud noises, not preferred. Um, unknown things. So I guess, like, a feeling of the... or a fear of the unknown. And then, in particularly in scary movies, like, seeing, like, weird like creatures or ghosts or goblins or something Mm. um these are like traditional things or typical things you might think of that make you feel scared yeah exactly this is kind of these are kind of like the stimuli that our brain has evolved over the years Mm -hmm. to learn to have this feeling of fear because if you have this feeling of fear in response to seeing these things you're more likely to survive and that's the whole thing that drives this concept of evolution and the way that our brain has formed is just if I learn to fear this thing then I will survive yeah Um, and that's just more of like kind of weeding out the species or like the versions of our brain that have evolved over however many years decades millennia what have you um, like the the humans or humanoids um, that are not like aversive that are not scared of certain stimuli they did not pass on their genes to not yeah. be scared of these certain stimuli because they probably died from yeah. like not trying to flee from the scary thing or not trying to fight off this thing mm-hmm. that's a, that was perceived as scary by other humans. Yeah. And those humans that perceive this one stimulus or these multiple stimuli as scary, they survived, they procreated, and like mm-hmm. their genes were passed down for their brain to develop in this certain way. So basically, if you're listening to this podcast right now, thank your ancestors for being scared because that's <laughs> the only reason you're here. <laughs> you're welcome. Slash thank you. And also, I feel like it goes down to the fundamentals of like biology of everything is about survival and it's everything is about reproduction. Essentially. Like when you get to it, that's just like what's driving evolution. But yeah. that's that's like another philosophical thing. We're getting yeah. way too deep in that. <laughs> But anyways, back to fear and what induces fear. So, Anu, like, where in the brain is this happening? Like, this fear, this fight or flight? 
which is occurring. Right, so the response itself, like the fight or flight, is just from our sympathetic nervous system, which we kind of talked about in our previous episode about the enteric nervous system. It, like, brings your heart rate up. Um, it draws blood away from, like, internal organs and goes more to, like, these gross muscle areas, like your legs for running away or your arms for, like, hand-to-hand combat, trying mm-hmm. to, like, fight off this thing. But the whole thing that is, like, telling your sympathetic nervous system to say, like, hey, there's a threat, we gotta fight it, or there's something scary, we have to run away, is your amygdala. It's kind of like this, um, it's a bilateral uh, cortical area in your brain, so there's, like, two parts of it. There's one in your left hemisphere and one in your right hemisphere, so it's just, like, it's on both sides of your brain. It's also almond shape. So, like, that's, so it's about, I don't know if it's, it's, like, the actual size of an average almond, but it is the general shape of an almond. Interesting. So, there's that. So, the amygdala, a lot of researchers in the past said it was, like, the seat of fear. It's responsible for feeling fear. Mm-hmm. But as we've, as, like, neuroscience and psychology research has evolved um, and, like, gotten more accurate throughout the years... Researchers have found that the amygdala is responsible for kind of like providing associations between a stimuli and how you feel about a stimuli. But it only it only really does that with like emotionally salient stimuli. So like, what do I mean by emotionally salient? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Emotional salience is essentially like something that sticks out to you uh, in comparison to other objects or other feelings or other people, etc., because it is a little bit more powerful. It's more present. So like um, if you're if you're like talking to multiple people or I guess you could say like if you're walking um, down a street and you see a bunch of different faces and you see someone that you recognize and you get a feeling of like either a positive or a negative feeling either like you know them they're like a long lost friend or like there's someone that made you mad in the past mm-hmm. um that person is more emotionally salient to you than like all these other random people on the street so it's something that stands out to you that your brain mm-hmm. makes a connection like hey i know this person they make me feel terrible or hey i know this person they make me feel like good yes. they're like my friend so it's very person to person specific yeah it's very yeah. it's very dependent on like your experiences so like mm-hmm. what someone finds emotionally salient may not be what, like, another person finds emotionally salient. And, like, another thing that, like, the amygdala is involved in, like, other than the associations, is sort of, like, this subconscious processing. So that that kind of, like, goes with the associations. So you have these associations, but the amygdala is trying to figure out how you feel about them. Not, like, saying, um, this is how I need to react in order, in, in like, in this presence of the stimulus. It's just more of, like, how is a stimulus making you feel? Does it make you feel good? Does it make you feel bad? And then other brain structures interpret why the amygdala is feeling that way. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like, like, I guess like the closest thing to intuition, you know? So it's just like when people say like, follow your gut. I mean, you, you should because like enteric nervous system, but also like yes. follow your amygdala. Mm-hmm. You know, it's doing a lot of the subconscious processing of like why you might feel like you get like a bad feeling Um, like, in a situation or in, like, walking into, like, this really sketchy-looking building or, like, past an alleyway at, in the dark or, like, meeting someone for the first time. This is pro- this is, like, what a lot of research have, have, like, thought about. Um, like, that's the reason why you get this, like, initial, like, I don't really know about this sort of thing. Yeah, it does also, like, talk to other brain regions. Like, the amygdala isn't, like, the only thing that's, like, Mm -hmm. hey, this is bad. You know, it doesn't work independently 
of the other brain regions, but it yeah. like communicates with other parts of the brain to tell you like, this is scary, therefore mm. we should do this. Let's go back to what we initially said about like, anything can make you feel scared, even if it's conditioned. That's great. Um, That's fantastic. <laughs> so yes, everything, anything can make you scared, but not initially. You kind of have to have a conditioned fear, a fear that gets developed over time, whether intentionally um, if someone's like creating a fear for you to feel, or if you just like have all these bad experiences and then you, your, your mind just creates this connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so a perfect example about, of this is, um, a famous study that Dr. Watson did with a child. This is the baby Albert experiment, which if you have taken a like basic psychology class, you've heard about this experiment and it's not... It's not the most humane way of finding out how fear can be induced. Um, I feel like that's just like the history of psychology in general. I mean, like after we found out this huge thing that's like super profound, it's like, you know, that was actually not very ethical. I mean, is it the history of science? You think of like the Nazis testing people. Yeah. You know? uh, <laughs> okay. Let's get out of that dark place and talk about fear again. Anyway. <laughs> So the baby Oliver experiment was essentially had a child who was about one year old and they, it's, his name was Albert. They gave him like fluffy, cute animals to play with. And this created a control of where anytime the baby was presented with this, um, with these animals, it didn't feel any fear. It was happy. It, sh- it showed signs of happiness, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be smiling or laughter, just, like, not crying. Mm -hmm. Crying was the big, what played into signaling that the child was scared. Mm -hmm. So after this control setting, they decided to, uh, every time they handed the baby Albert a animal, they also made a loud noise. Mm -hmm. And so every time Albert was presented with this animal, that he heard a loud noise, and so he began to cry. Mm -hmm. And the fear got so conditioned of hearing this loud noise and also seeing the animal that even before he touched the animal, if he just saw it, even without hearing the noise, he started to cry. That sounds really terrible. It, it is. It is. Um, but what we learn from this and what we know is that we have things called unconditioned stimuli and an unconditioned response. And this unconditioned stimuli is like the loud noise where... You don't really have to, I would say your brain doesn't have to be trained to know like, oh, I hear a loud noise, I'm going to cry, or I'm going to get startled. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you have your conditioned stimuli, which is paired, which is the animal, and it's paired with this loud noise. So then every time you see this animal and you hear this loud noise, you get scared. And it gets to such a point where... You just see the animal, and you'll just get scared. Mm -hmm. So this is an example of an induced fear or learned fear. Um, Yeah, so that sounds really similar to, like, Pavlov's dog. Is that, like, the same thing, essentially? So that is an example with Pavlov's dog of every time the dogs heard a bell, they would begin to salivate um, because they would be expecting meat powder Mm -hmm. right after they heard the bell. And it got to a point where if they just heard the bell, they would just salivate, even if there was no meat powder around. Essentially, what we've learned from this is anything can induce fear if it's paired with something that already induces fear in you. So so this like kind of makes sense, too, because 
it explains why like some people are afraid of certain things but like other people aren't afraid of that thing it's because they Mm -hmm. haven't really had like a negative experience about it right so and this if we want to get like super deep which like we have like three times already and it's like not even I don't even know (laughs) it's very early into this podcast episode but like why um I guess like I might be afraid of like roller coasters Mm -hmm. but like you totally love them yeah they're great (laughs) they're so much fun yeah um so yeah that makes sense because it's like we kind of like conditioned ourselves or like we've been conditioned by these different like situations by Mm -hmm. like associating them that essentially shows why we can just form fears to Mm -hmm. literally anything um as someone who is personally scared of like literally anything um, not literally anything, but, like, a good majority of things that exist. Right? I think you're a pretty fearless person. Uh, you haven't seen... You know, because, like, I called you, like, a couple of weeks ago to try and squish this huge bug in my apartment. That is true. And I was literally terrified. But you were just, like, going in, like, a freaking warrior, ready to just, like, kill this little demon. It It got me thinking, actually, whenever we were researching about this uh episode about like fear and what induces fear and why am I such a scared person all the time (laughs) of just like what would it be like if you just felt like no fear at all like you know you weren't scared of anything and I don't mean just like self-confident I don't mean like not not being afraid of like the unknown or like commitment or anything like that I mean Mm. like you there's like the house is burning down it's on fire and you're just like walking out not a care in the world, you know what I mean? Yeah, I can see the ups and downs of that, because definitely, you know, not being afraid of, I don't know, like, life things like commitment or the unknown, but I, I, I'd want to know that I'm scared of my house burning down. I mean, yes, I'm obviously scared of my house burning down as well, but, like, um, you know, if there's, like, in this external stimulus that is supposed to, like, from an evolutionary standpoint, induce mm-hmm. fear, Yeah. Um, it's kind of like this like, this workaround from that, uh, from our brains evolving in a way where, like, our ancestors, like, died off, they didn't feel fear. Yeah. So, you know, like, there's this disease called Erbach-White disease, which is essentially, like, the fearless disease. Like, if you have it, you don't really fear, you don't really feel fear from, like, Mm. external stimuli. And this disease actually is associated with the, with the, I guess, like, lesioning, or the amygdala not able to kind of, like, do its function properly. Like, we talked about, like, associating stimuli with a fear or lack of fear. And, like, you feeling that. It's like that intuition of, like, this thing is scary. Let's get away from it. Or this thing is safe. We don't have to run away. Mm-hmm. Right? So, uh, Erbach-White disease is, like, a recessive disease associated with, like, the calcification of the... Uh, amygdala and by calcification I mean just like this buildup of calcium in the amygdala right and then so there were there there's been like plenty of studies on Erbach-White disease and like uh like case studies of how people can um I guess just like live their life without feeling fear and how that's different from other people who don't have this disease or have like hyperactive amygdala but the first introduction um to the science community about the amygdala and how it can be affected in Erbach-White disease is this case study done in the about like mid 90s early 2000s 
with this woman whose code name is SM. They just like call her SM for um, like identity protection purposes, right? And then so SM, she has Erbach wife disease, and I'm pretty sure she's still alive too. I'm pretty sure she's like in her mid 40s, mm-hmm. and like she can't feel fear, like she at all just like doesn't like that's just not her thing. She oh, just doesn't wow. do it. So like she has been like attempted to be robbed at like gunpoint at knife point and she she's totally chill she's just walking away from situations where I would personally feel like paralyzed with fear you know when when you think about like this person who is trying to rob you and possibly kill you and do whatever else like that just fills me with like a sense of dread even just like thinking about it, even though like yeah. we're in a safe spot right now like we're not out in the world right now, like, just thinking about that, that makes me feel, like, slightly uncomfortable. And she wouldn't feel that at all. Yeah, no. Um, so from, like, this, like, some case studies that psychologists have done on her, they have put her in, like, different situations, um, obviously, like, controlled, like, where if she was in any real, real danger, they would have, like, taken her out. This Mm -hmm. is, like, definitely not as inhumane as, like, the little Albert experiment, the baby Albert experiment, but, like, they would put her around like dangerous poisonous animals like poisonous snakes and she would just go and pick them up what like pick them up no protective gear just like pick them up and and like they noted that it was just out of her like sheer curiosity of like what's that let me pick it up and it's just like oh it's poisonous and she would still pick it up Mm -hmm. even though like it's it was very like known that if she was like bitten she would die or like you know there's a high probability that she would die and that's just like really insane to me like I'm already afraid of snakes uh on the long growing list of things that I'm afraid of but like snakes in general even if they're harmless I tend to just be like eh no thank you I don't want to like really touch it Mm -hmm. um but like knowing a snake is poisonous yeah even just like the thought of a poisonous snake like, possibly being in an environment. I can't even, like, see it. I don't even, it, like, I don't even know if it's there or not. Um, even the thought of a snake possibly being around, like, that just makes me feel very, I don't know, it makes me feel very scared, you know? And there were, like, other things that the, that psychologists would, like, note as well whenever they, they were studying SM and this, I guess, like, manifestation of Erbach-Weiss disease within her mm-hmm. behavior like she just had a higher than average desire to just like walk up to people and talk to them like not like obviously doing anything weird but just like walking up to people that she yeah. did not know not have a connection to and just like talking to them and like from that it kind of like makes me think of like this internalized, not, like, crippling social anxiety that we all tend to have, or, like, a majority of people tend to have, but it's just, like, not really wanting to, like, walk up to someone that you, like, don't even know and just, like, carry on a conversation with them. Like, I feel like everyone gets at least just a little nervous Mm -hmm. when they walk into a room. They're like, I don't know anyone. Mm -hmm. And you you do have maybe a little sense of, like, oh, but I don't know what I should do in this moment. But then you can get over it. But she just doesn't have that at all. Mm-mm. Jeez. Yeah. And she also doesn't really feel the need, like, for to have personal space. Like, for her, herself. Mm. Like, she doesn't... She's not as, like, ticked off or, like, uncomfortable if someone is just, like, talking to her. Obviously not, not doing anything, like, to make her yeah. intentionally uncomfortable. But just, like, talking to her and just, like, standing really, really close to her. Jeez. So, like, for me, I'm just, like... That automatically makes me uncomfortable. Mm. Like, I need at least, like... 
at least like half an arm's length away from someone that I'm like super close with. Yeah. But like for me, um, I just like, I cannot relate to that. Well, then that like makes sense and plays into like why, like if she would be able to be held at gunpoint or knife point and Mm -hmm. like someone just got that close and she just wasn't even thinking about it. Yeah. Wow. That's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, that's terrifying me. Not terrifying for her. Obviously. (laughs) Obviously. My goodness. Yeah. And also, like, from other, like, case studies from people who have had this disease or, like, currently still live with it, they also have a little bit of trouble processing very emotionally salient things from, like, an intuition standpoint. So, like, kind of like how we talked about, like, the amygdala isn't just about fear, kind of like how you mentioned that brain regions are only, like, responsible for this one thing and this one thing only. That's Mm -hmm. the same. It can be applied to, like, the amygdala in this episode. You know, like, it is largely responsible for, like, driving the fight or flight response in terms of, do we fear this thing? Is this, like, a threat to our well-being? Is this a threat to our life? But it's also very important in helping the hippocampus form memories uh, around emotionally salient things. Mm -hmm. And not just, like, events in our lifetime, but even just, like, interpreting people's emotions. So, so like, one thing that they mentioned, um, it was, like, a different study um, that I can also link in the sources as well, but uh, researchers used 10 people who had Erbach-Weiss disease, and they showed them different pictures of people making different facial expressions for, like, the six most common emotions. It was, like, um, fear, anger, happiness, surprise, disgust, and there was, like, one more. There's, like, six of them. I named, like, the five off Inside Out, but there was, like, one more. Um, they show them different pictures uh, of these different people, like, uh, making all of these, uh, I guess, just, like, stereotyped facial expressions mm-hmm. for these emotions, and a majority of the people did not have this feeling of, oh, they're, like, automatically like sad this person is sad they're automatically like oh this person's angry this person's happy they more they had to use more of like executive functioning to determine if they were mad or sad so Mm -hmm. instead of like looking at a picture and just automatically this person is angry they were thinking their brows are furrowed their mouth is like upturned they're squinting a little bit or like they're snarling their teeth are reared back so they must be angry. That's kind mm-hmm. of, like, their thought process. And, like, over time, this is kind of also, like, what you said about, like, the conditioned behavior. This can right. also be associated with, like, learning in general. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you can, like, look at someone's face and, like, learn that this is what being angry looks like. These yeah. are the facial features associated with being angry. But our amygdala processes that so quickly on such a subconscious level, you can just split-second look at someone mm-hmm. and like, nine times out of ten know what emotion they're expressing. And that's just, like, picking up on body language when you're in social situations Mm -hmm. to know what's happening around you. So, yeah, especially whenever you can't really recognize things that are emotionally salient Mm -hmm. and you kind of see everything as kind of, like, this monochromatic timeline, um, then, like, it's really hard to form memories and, like, learn experiences about certain things that are very emotionally salient for a majority of the population, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, like, if someone's holding you at gunpoint and, like, trying to rob you, that's a very, that's a highly emotionally salient experience, you know? That's something that your brain, um, like, your amygdala is very active saying, like, this is not a good situation. And it's telling, and it's recording those memories with your hippocampus, in your hippocampus, Mm -hmm. and 
it is saying like this memory was really terrible and it might start associating like well I might not pass um, by this part of town at a certain hour right. like when it gets dark I might stop walking outside or like next time I'll walk with somebody else or mm -hmm. I won't go through any alleys or anything like that you yeah. know but like for someone who cannot process this information in, and like look at things as like emotionally salient versus not emotionally salient all of this is just like a regular occurrence it's like how sometimes yeah. you don't really remember things that are like very day-to-day -day, like picking up like coffee unless mm -hmm. something big happens you don't it's not a very standout memory yeah but for someone with Erbach-like disease having these very highly emotionally salient experiences are just like oh yeah I just like picked up coffee read the newspaper I mm -hmm. had lunch with a like a work friend or something yeah. like that which is very hard to like picture if you don't have this sort of condition yeah I I don't know to life without fear and also connecting like you said having salient emotions connected to like events I don't know what that's like so that would oh that's such an interesting way to live and for your brain to function mm -hmm. wow all right so now we're going to talk about why do people like fear? Because fear, let's let's think about it. It's an industry. It is, you can make a lot of money in fear. Think about like scary movies, haunted houses, um, people paying to like, like a lot of money for costumes or whatnot. Like people, people like to be scared. Hashtag capitalism. Oh yes, hashtag <laughs> capitalism. But why? Like People in, I, I cannot relate to this because I, I know we both don't enjoy scary movies. Um, and like, I really try, I try to be like, yeah, I'll watch it. But then I end up curled up on the couch, scared out of my mind just because I don't enjoy it. Yeah. I don't enjoy it at all. And I, my friends can like joke about it and like watch it and have fun with it and mm -hmm. even talk about it afterwards and mm -hmm. be like, oh my gosh, you know that one scene can't do it yeah no same here for me it was like it was really weird because like when I was younger I used to really love scary movies really? like anything creepy and scary and thrilling I was just like yes yes give me all of this entertainment and like now I'm I'm like so scared of that kind of mm -hmm. stuff like if I watch a scary movie even if it's not like super scary if it's like a little bit suspenseful suspenseful and thrilling which is awesome but has that like scary kind of aspect to it mm -hmm. then I just like I have like nightmares about it I cannot like leave my closet door open when I go to sleep yeah. at night that sort of thing and it's just like it's really weird because like when I was younger I was like stupidly fearless but I think I learned my lesson as I grew up <laughs> I see I draw a line at um American Horror Story mm -hmm. I actually really enjoy that that series um, and then, like, The Purge or whatnot. I don't know why I draw the line at these, but anything else, like, uh, The Exorcist mm -hmm. or, like, that whole series, um, I can't, I can't do it. I just can't. Um, but we do differ on something that scares us. I actually enjoy, like, roller coasters, but you do not. Oh, no, I do not. <laughs> See, I have it as a life goal to jump out of a plane one day. <laughs> And the skydive, because that just sounds, it just sounds fun. And I've always enjoyed roller coasters and that feeling of, like, free-falling. Um, and, like, the pit of your stomach just kind of, like, lifts up. Mm -hmm. um, I know it, honestly, I wonder if it's not good for you to kind of subject your body to, <laughs> like, 
elective fear, mm-hmm. but I guess I just enjoy, like, the rush of it all. Yeah. It's, like, it's so funny that you mentioned that, because I feel like the exact opposite way. Mm-hmm. Like, roller coasters, I I just don't enjoy the idea of them. I hate getting on them even worse than the idea of them. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know, just, like, I am, like, so scared of heights as it is. I think that's, like, what kind of propagates that fear of roller coasters and, like, fear of skydiving. But I also have this intense fear of free fall because I literally feel like I'm about to die. Yeah. Like, even if I am just, like, strapped in into this hopefully, like, structurally sound machine. Hopefully. You know, hopefully is the big, <laughs> is the big keyword, hopefully. Like... You know, I just literally feel like I'm about to die. Like, I feel like I'm plummeting towards my death. Even though, like, rationally, I know I'm at an amusement park. Mm-hmm. I am in a machine ride that has been, like, tested over and over again. has been built by engineers that are qualified to build these things. Mm-hmm. I, it's just, like, that feeling of just, like, getting to the very top. And, like, suddenly it just feels like the, like the motor on that just like stops and you can just yeah. feel yourself slowly going down and all of a sudden like picking up speed. Yeah. It got worse after I took like my first physics class and like I knew like that I'm just like mm-hmm. get faster and faster. Like yeah. gravity, it works on like, like it's not constant. It just like picks up the more, like the higher up you are and then you reach terminal velocity. That just like made I mean, me more scared, like knowing how the physics behind free fall work. And then it's just like, I mean, it is silly. It is very silly that humans pay money to strap themselves into this, <laughs> thing that weighs so many tons and like hey maybe you're gonna feel like you're plumbing your death and you know what possibly you could be because if this breaks you will die thanks madeline i really i'm sorry i really needed that (laughs) i'm i'm sorry but it's true and also uh you know the same with uh scary movies and like haunted houses Mm -hmm. um you're paying money just to be scared out of your wits which Again, hashtag capitalism, <laughs> but it's it's kind of silly, but if you enjoy it, go for it. Bridging the Synapse is produced, edited, and written by us. Anu Kumar and Madeline MacArthur. Production assistance is provided by John Kennedy from The Daily Beacon. Music in this episode is from Pottington Bear. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. We can also, we also release one episode a month in conjunction with The Daily Beacon. You can contact us via our email, which is bridgingthesynapse at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at SynapseBridge and on Instagram at bridgingthesynapse. For more information about this podcast and to check out what sources we use for this episode, visit us on Anchor or our Facebook page, which is Bridging the Synapse Podcast. We also have some show notes on our medium publication, Bridging the Synapse, and our podcast can be found, our episode can be found wherever podcasts are available. We hope you've learned something new today, and we'll see you on the next episode.